0: This is Swampside Chance, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the latest installment of our Not One Step Back Comrades reading series, we look at two pieces by Amartya Sen. The first, Ingredients of Famine Analysis, Availability and Entitlements, and the second was written in collaboration with Jean Dries, entitled Hunger and Public Action. We'll start with the first one Ingredients of Famine Analysis Availability and Entitlements. Um it's gonna be tricky. I don't have a lot to say about this. Basically it's just like a it it's an analysis of the particular dynamics of three different famines. Uh the Bengal famine of nineteen forty three, Ethiopian famine of nineteen seventy three in Wallow, and the Bangladesh famine of nineteen seventy four. Um and basically if I understood it correctly, um the gist is that in these three cases, the famines were not so much of a result we're not really a result of like meaningful decreases in like agricultural productivity but more with dis- broader disruptions within the economy itself that had outcomes resulting in food not getting to people who needed food yeah is that would that be an accurate overall characterization
1: yeah it's his his major contribution and the, you know the insight that he won the Nobel prize for essentially like the being able to demonstrate this <clears throat> is that the, like, the food availability decline kind of explanation that was universally given in all these famines, you know, and it also extends, um, to, uh, to China in the next essay that we read. Um, but you know, it's, I w- I'm reminded of the Stalin meme about the famine in the 30s that Stalin ate all the grain. And paid the clouds not to rain, you know but it's really just all about food availability, right like that's the that's that's why a famine happens like
2: that's the com- and that is the common sense kind of oh why is there oh yeah. there must have been less there must have been <coughs> less food grown that year or whatever
1: well, well it's just the natural way of things, why do people starve because there wasn't food? But once you enter, once you enter capitalist society, as it turns out, why do people starve? It's not because there wasn't food, and that's the most mind-bending thing of all. And so Sen is, yeah, arguing for this legal kind of uh, rights-based approach to, you know, analysis. It's later developed into, excuse me, later developed into um, welfare economics. And this is part of Nobel Prize-winning work. It's a Nobel Prize for swanside
2: right? I mean, it's it's yep. sense thesis basically is you know that in in class societies like capitalism that you can have a adequate amount of food and have these famines occur because of human agency. Yeah.
1: Famines all are always artificial you know it's it's the scarcity in famine in capitalism is is art- is an artificial scarcity and i mean I guess this also includes you know um at least the chinese famine but
0: um, it almost seems commonsensical because there is yeah there is an abundance of agricultural output in capitalism, so there's always food somewhere and it's a global trade system, so yeah presumably you're going to be able to get food somewhere although this this um Analysis focuses more on, like, dynamics within, like, a particular country slash kind of region. Mm-hmm. Uh, right.
1: But, and, and so not only is it true on the global level, it's true even, you know, more locally. Like, that's how, you know, super abundant, like, food ends up being. Well, you know, to a degree. Like, we, there's no natural basis for famine anymore. There's no real natural basis for hunger anymore. That has been overcome. Like period, mm-hmm. and it, it it can be demonstrated in perfectly bourgeois terms uh, to the satisfaction of the Nobel Committee. You know what I mean? <laughs> like right. that's something that that's something that you know is now commonsensical in you know bourgeois economics. That <laughs> how do I say this? That you know even even some Marxists have not picked up on. Because people get, you know, defensive about famines instead of making the broader critiques of class society that we have available, even just commonsensically in the 21st century.
0: Well, yeah, well, the context that most Marxists like talking about famines is examining kind of what allegedly happened in the Soviet Union and China.
1: Right. Yeah, and and a lot of that is because of the megalomaniacal. They made a famine on purpose.
0: Yeah, right. I kind mean, or it's yeah, or it's like if you you know if you if you get socialized medicine, like this is what's going to happen. Right, you know, and, you're gonna you're gonna be Venezuela. And so it's like you know, there's so much. There are people are supposed to be kind of like inundated with that kind of like bad faith shit. That there's, I could see like the appeal in, in that context of like tanky stuff, where it's like, nah, dude, those are all lies. It was great, <laughs> you know? right? And and so because. Because the politics
2: of anti-communism so color the history of these regimes, people, you know, go and just take the flip side of the coin, really.
0: Yeah. Well, I like, could definitely, you know, like I remember like talking to people who said they became like, like I know people who said they became tankies when they were like teenagers, and I, I didn't really get that at first. Um, but then I kind of thought about it and say it is kind of like the perfect like no fuck you dad, like it was great. Like those are all lies. You know Stalin was a great man. Yeah. But so famine analysis. Um, and it does. I, I'm cur- I would be curious to understand like how these dynamics could. Pl- I mean, it is also even with this this framework conceivable that you know a situation where there was an actual like significant decrease in like agricultural output. You know that would. I would probably aggravate like these kind of distribution systems in a way oh there's no uh,
1: there's no doubt and and there is at least one of these events where there was actually like a hit in um food um production or or there there was like a decline in food availability, but he still rules it out as being the causal factor because he could like mitigate for it. I forget it's not in this it's not in this essay, I think it was in China,
0: yes, I believe there was one where i I feel like I I remember there was something about like uh US foreign policy having a uh having a role to play in that. I think they they were pissed that the country was like trading with Cuba, so they didn't, they were kind of stingy with the aid.
1: <laughs> well, it this framework is also really challenging because it also like what's the point of giving food aid if there's already enough food being produced in the area that's not being distributed? <laughs> Like, I'm not saying don't give food aid because yeah, there was like a dip in food production, but like it just makes you think about the the total irrationality of the system. Like,
0: yeah, I mean, and to be fair, I mean, I do have some sympathy because these do seem like you know sort of like post-colonial, like underdeveloped places. Like, I mean, there there was one where there was problems with the roads, so th- you could you could see how something could very easily happen in a situation like this. Um, but yeah, it's probably just it's you know it's part and parcel of like the larger legacy of colonialism and its uh, its effects on like the maldevelopment of countries that were had the boot of boot of the white man on their neck for a long time. So
1: yeah, um, yeah, it's it's impossible to like. Well, I mean, it's possible for a Marxist to read this and not think about you know anti imperialism more broadly, and, like. The fact that most of these famines happened under the colonial jackboot. Yes, it happened to the colonized population, but, you know, one of Sen's major, like, explanatory kind of, like, claims is that what allows famines to happen is basically a lack of, and I'm putting in in square parentheses, bourgeois, okay, uh, freedom of information, right? Like, you need... To be able to get the word out um, that people are hungry, in order for there to be rapid response, there can't be any censorship of that stuff, even if it reflects poorly on the regime or whatever other reason. Well, right, because you you
2: can't have a situation where it's like I'm hungry, and it's like comrade, you don't support our new society. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. right. Say you're hungry. Well, I think it's I think it's
0: more a matter of yeah, like bad information flows, um, and yeah basically, just yeah, the signals that would be needed for to get resources to the allocated to the appropriate areas aren't there.
1: Well, there. So it's true on the political level, like you know, and then it, there's also like the other concept about price signals and uh, markets being maybe, eh, like, arguably, like if this is like, <sighs> okay, so this is where it gets tricky, right? Like in all, all, like, all of these happen under colonial regimes except for the Chinese example. In the Chinese example, it's, you know, a co- like, a co- country that used to be colonized, threw off its oppression, right? And, like, accidentally did it to itself. Um, it's like, in the other situations, the reason you didn't have freedom of information is because of capitalism. <laughs> Like like imperialist capitalism. Like tamping down on the colonial population. Like and not allowing the kind of freedom of information that you would get in the core for a lot of the population. And yeah, I guess that's like the major, that's like maybe like the major difference there. Because actually in the article on China, just more spoiler alert, he's kind of very sympathetic to like how the Chinese economy stacks up to uh, the Indian economy when it comes to, like, human development stuff.
0: Um, I wonder how much of that, though, is, yeah, like, bad information flows and how much of that, I wonder <laughs> if, if, how much of that was they just didn't really give a shit, because, you know, like, we got a situation, like, everyone knows about the problem that is happening in Flint right now, you know, and nothing's really nothing's really, nothing's really happening, you know, no one's fixing it. Well, reportedly... You know, we, that's, not an infor- that's not an information problem.
2: Reportedly... Um, even people who are pretty anti-Mao accept that nobody at the top of the Chinese government realized beforehand how actually murderous the economic war against the peasantry would be, to to borrow a phrase from one of them. But uh, apparently even uh, Mao's private physician was pretty sure Mao didn't really know what the fuck was going on, and when presented with kind of graphic reports of famine, was, like, visibly shaken.
0: Um, and so... Well, it seems like in the Chinese example, they were basically... They bought into, like, the myth of, like, from Stalin. Uh, you know, and they... So they, they basically just... They went along with the same idea that, you know, um, agricultural collectivization will just automatically create productivity. Right, and if
2: we if we uh, collective And then... You know, they kind of, oh, we'll collectivize it, but we'll do it in a more ultra left kind of way, basically, you know, decentralized or what the fuck ever. And it just, um, that doesn't work. I mean, and, and yeah. not only that, it's, it is intentionally, you know, it's trying to subsume as much of the peasant, of, as much of peasant production to proletarianization as possible. And well, good job. You, now you've got a big proletariat and you're one of the world's biggest toy manufacturers, China. You did it. But, um, it, it's it's very clear in Marx that you can't just impose this whole thing on the peasantry in a um, in an emancipatory way. That that's just not a thing that can be done. There's there's a great quote in the uh, *Conspectus* on Bakunin's statism and anarchy, where Marx says, uh, "Where the peasant exists in the mass as private proprietor." where he forms a more or less considerable majority, uh, where he has not disappeared and been replaced by the agricultural wage labor, the following cases apply. Either he hinders each worker's revolution, or the proletariat must, as government, take measures through which the peasant finds his condition immediately improved so as to win him for the revolution, measures which will at least provide the possibility of easing the transition from private ownership of land to collective ownership, So that the peasant arrives at this of his own accord, from economic reasons. It must not hit the peasant over the head by proclaiming the abolition of the right inheritance or the abolition of his property. So basically, you know, we've got Karl Marx, who all of these regimes, the Soviet Union, China, uphold as the fucking prophet. But he states in no uncertain terms, you can't force... The peasantry into supporting the revolution. You can't forcibly collectivize the peasantry without disastrous
0: consequences. But, well had that been cha- had that been translated into Chinese at the time is the question.
2: Well, I, I just Chi- mean to say that it's it's implicit it's implicit in Marx's kind of emancipatory frame. I think that that even if you didn't have that exact quote, that the point of revolution is not to impose it on the people uh, who are. Well, I was going to say what's,
0: what's, What's maddening about the Chinese case, too, is that, you know, you could you could see like a kind of like dark rationality to like Stalin's like insane collectivization plan and just the like idea to like basically create a civil war against the peasantry because because the Soviet Union kind of stood alone. But China, like they were part of a larger bloc. Like they probably didn't really even like, quote unquote, have to do something like that. You know, they just did it because, oh, well, that's what the Soviets did. And t- things turned out great for them. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's what it it's, seems like, anyway. I mean,
1: it's, it's. I mean, if that's the case, and it was really like ideological transmission, then it's impossible to overstate the damage that exporting like the Russian strategy did to the world communist movement. Like, I just kind of want to believe that there's an underlying dynamic that generated the need for this, rather than literally that was
2: exported
1: and that it just all could have been different.
2: Well, I, I think like, it comes down to that, proletarianization sounds... as as you know these these becoming regimes that that you know they they yeah. cha- they change and in- they want to change an entire way of life in less than a generation and have an industrial base to compete in the capitalist world market. But like you know the Chinese
1: revolution was very different. They had like they had this like the block of four classes, like it was extremely like, you know, Marx might have like you know been kind of encouraged by how the Chinese Revolution went down, but you know like,
0: in a way, yeah, wo- there were so many opportunities with that, like, yeah, it's crazy,
1: like there there it was, yeah, there's there was well, you had was, really interesting you know, stuff like the Shanghai Commune, commune
2: that got fucking knocked out. Oh, oh yeah, of course.
1: I mean, not at, like. So the Shanghai Commune is, like, one of the high points of, like, radicalism on the planet Earth. Like, not everything can touch those heights. There's, you know, there's still other things in the Chinese Revolution that one can appreciate as, as you know, that it had the potential to go in a really emancipatory direction. Um,
0: I mean, I think it actually kind of still does have the potential to go into an emancipatory direction. I mean, there are, really? like... There are like, there are like class force there are people trying to organize like in China. I mean, it's very difficult, but
1: uh, yeah. But it would be you know, a, it would there, it would be against this, you know, against what was established against in the
0: against G, against G. Yeah, yeah, I know. And
1: uh, that yeah, that's the sort of this yeah, that's the difference. Like it wouldn't be, yeah.
0: but the, I, that I revolution. see. Grant puts their faith in the proletariat. I put my faith in the Chinese proletariat specifically. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's why I stand. <laughs> So I I stand Schwang Journal all day every day. Yeah. I think
0: no, if, honestly, there's, if there's
2: anything up. if there's anything everybody on this podcast agree, can agree about, it's that our listeners should toss Schwang a buck. You know, like that. Oh that, yeah, that's a, that's a good that's a good project.
0: Yeah, prayers up.
1: Yeah, really. Yeah, Schwang deserves more funding.
0: Um. All right, so should we move on to uh, the second? Uh second little, uh, yeah. little piece? Should we have anything more to say about Sen, specifically? I mean, Well,
1: this next one is still, is still half Sen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, still half Sen. Um, th- there's, um, I don't know, there's this, like, comparative analysis of the three famines, and um, let's see. Oh yeah, he makes a point of saying that, because of these dynamics, that you can have an economic climate of a boom, and you have a boom famine. Right, and that boom famine is one of the basic genres of famine. Like that, that shit happens, like you know, somewhat frequently. That it's like because of the operation of markets that things get exacerbated. Like Sen is saying some things that are sort of market friendly, particularly about price signals. You know, as opposed to like the, you know. (laughs) the Rube Goldberg machine of bureaucratic lies that came from, you know, the, the planning mechanisms in famines. Like, um... But he also acknowledges that sometimes functioning markets can exacerbate famines. Um, and this is why, you know, there aren't more Marcus Sen stands out there. <laughs> like, he he just has, like, a table of things that are like the normal causes or or like or like the normal causes, like or the the normal like interesting I don't know. God, what am I saying? Here's a table of like the interesting causal factors and kind of other miscellaneous kind of facts about the famine. Like it's um like it demonstrates that you could have famine and boom and slump. Um that there has to What page to- is that on? Oh I'm sorry. This is on our page twenty six. It's page like four fifty seven on the page. Um. Anyway, it's so it has um. God, all right. I'm just gonna like start again. So this like table nine here, comparative analysis of three famines, um, compares the Bengal famine, Ethiopian famine, Bangladesh famine, on a couple important like causal attributes or, like, stuff that's commonly imputed to be causal. And then, like, there's also some information of note. Like, he he wants to point to that there's always a specific kind of population that, that's getting affected. So here, okay, you have rural labor in the Bengal famine. That is the occupation group that provided the largest number of famine victims. In the, in the Ethiopian famine, it was farmers. In the Bangladesh famine... Uh, rural labor as well. Um, so that's, you know, the first kind of thing you see here. The second thing you see here is is the causal factors. Like, was there a food availability collapse? No, no, and no. Um, he has the concepts of direct entitlement failure versus trade entitlement failure, which he thinks, you know, entitlements are, like, and he's using this legal rights framework he thinks that's the best way to bring it out. I think maybe if there's a point of attack it's whether talking about these things in terms of legal right makes sense. But, you know, the point is well taken mm-hmm. that you have to suffer either a direct entitlement failure um or a trade entitlement failure. So that's either like you're, you know, are like like is like is there enough food like directly available from what you harvest? Or, can, like, can you trade for enough food? So one of those things has to fail. Like. Right. And also he's interested in what he calls, uh, substantial endowment loss, which is, there's like various degrees here. Like, that can or can not be true and you stop the famine. So it was true in Bangladesh. It was a little true in Ethiopia. It's not true in the Bengal famine. Um, but then you talk about this. does that group did that group have like they they suffer entitlement shifts, exchange entitlement shifts. That's his language here. So I don't know if that made anything clearer, but like yeah.
0: that's well, kind yeah, of the thing about it's his illustri- framework It's a very illustrative chart. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's kind of the thing about his framework. Because he's right, like, about what he's talking about. This is like I don't know. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's incredible that he got a bunch of like. It's incredible that he got like you know bourgeois social
2: science like economics to
1: to take this
2: on. Right, and even the stuff about India is pretty is pretty radical in a way because when you have people's lives and he's demonstrating this stuff, um, when you have people's lives being dramatically shortened by mal- malnutrition, and you you say, oh, there's no equation possible between this and the kind of state socialist regimes, you're paving over capitalism's horrors. To act like that can't be equated at all. I mean, you know, and so obviously for socialists, one of the big questions is, okay, like, it's a big deal that the violence of post-colonial development was horrendous across that divide. But for a bourgeois scholar to... Be as sympathetic to China in this debate as he is, and to to include the information that is included about India's failures to keep a pace and things like that you no know, it's it's actually a pretty impressive piece of piece of work
1: oh yeah um there's um so he's so, okay so there's a paragraph for this um, Dres and Sen piece on China and India, and it's on, like, page 7 of our PDF and 214 of the book in general, and it leads over into the next page. That I just... I, I don't know. I just think it sort of sums up what an interesting perspective they have on um China and India. Um It is important to note that despite the gigantic size of excess mortality in the Chinese famine, the extra mortality in India from regular deprivation in normal times vastly outshadows the former. Comparing India's death rate of 12 per thousand per thousand with China's of 7 per thousand and applying that difference to the Indian population of 700, 781 million in 1986, we get an estimate of excess normal mortality in India of 3.9 million per year. This implies that every eight years or so, more people die in India because of its higher regular death rate than died in China in the gigantic famine of 1958 through 61. India seems to manage to fill its cupboard with more skeletons every eight years than China put there in its years of shame.
0: Yeah, I'm going to file that one in my little... uh Take that, right winger <laughs> card. That really goes to show just how much of this, like, I don't know, uh, Venezuela shit, really is just complete gaslighting. Like, I remember, like, at one point, the socialism subreddit like tried to create a page, deaths under capitalist like governments or whatever or societies, because there's like a death on deaths under communism, like w- wiki page or whatever. It, they 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 wouldn't let them do it, but. I mean it's it's perfectly fair game and I kind of wish they'd managed to pull it off.
1: Well, I think there's a really good historical materialist reason for this, right? Like there's just certain kinds of just like uh, acceptable, you know, death by negligence like in capitalist class society. It's one of its tr- it's one of its trademarks.
0: Well, yeah, it inherited like certain conceptions about the way society works from like the tributary mode of production where like, the that kind of, like, idea of, like, self-sufficiency maybe has, like, some basis to it. But the thing is, like, people don't really seem to fully, like, grasp, like, this material abundance that, like, capitalism has created. And how, you know, when you have a system where you are basically capable of providing everybody, you kind of have, like, a moral imperative to do so. And this idea that, like, people just need to, like, fend for themselves is insane if they don't have, like, plots of land and food. Like, if you don't have anything, like, you're dependent on this system, and if the system has the capacity to provide for everybody, it should.
1: There's just sort of a reason that, within a class society, the kinds of death that it allows, you know, like, even if it's the same, very same mechanism, people are just sort of, you know, being, like, malnourished to death and starved, you know, like, yeah, it's the same biological process, but happening, in you know. In in the one case, it happens so often in eminently reproducible conditions, and in the other case, it is just like a tremendous collapse, like it's you know, uh, like something out of a, like the most horrible nightmare, like 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 in 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 a big instant, you know. Well, that like is the event. that
2: is the thing is that um you know in in a lot of famines, what people die of is disease related to their starvation and not literally that they're starving um but i imagine that carries over to the india case as well with the kind of slow burn facet as too
1: and yeah that's probably true for overall public health as well though i mean and so
2: like yeah yeah though you can't talk about you can't talk about you know great leap great leap forward great leap forward <laughs> you can't talk about great leap forward china without um you know this is a, this is a like capitalist societies this is one that had you know labor camps and things like that this is you know there there was also violence that took place here it wasn't purely some kind of secular process
1: yeah i i guess what i'm trying to say is that like famines are kind of like are the kind of thing that capitalist society is is like it generates it, but it's somewhat serious about wanting that stuff to end, because it's not good for its own stability, even if it's happening to a vulnerable colonial population. They don't give a shit about them, but they, like, there's plenty of, like, operational capitalists that would, like, you know, that are, that, that, you know, some of them, like, you know, do, like, bullshit, like, charity stuff, like, when there are famines and yada yada, like, like, capitalism, like, as an emergent force, like, creates famines and then feels bad about it. The kind of hunger that he's talking about here is just, you know, fuck you money. Like, like, it's, and it's, it's built into the fabric of the system and it's constant. Like, it's always the, it's gonna it's be this way. Capitalism is not gonna eliminate that entirely, even if it does in the core. Like, it, it, you know, it won't. I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's good historical materialist reasons that people are not going to confront, you know, what Sen here says about what happens every eight years in India. And, um, and, and Amartya Sen as a bourgeois economist, you know, has like a, a more of a clear sight, like more, more of a consistent humanist morality than is like possible for, for, for a lot of like the horizons of our society.
0: Well, yeah, and they're, they're letting the numbers speak. You know what I mean. They're just looking. Mm-hmm. You when know, well, you look at the math here, like this is just as bad as it is over here. I mean, that's just the fact. It's yeah. just an
1: admirable case of the way science can be used in a like pro pro way or a pro like you know oppressed way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is a, a sterling example. Sterling example.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said, I yeah, I feel like I've not really sure what else to say about this like i said i think it, i thought it was an, again it was interesting to look at like kind of maybe the more microdynamics of like how famines like occur uh, basically mostly under the cat i mean they talk they talk a little bit about the chinese stuff but mostly under the, the the capitalist example mm-hmm. um and again like i think uh, depressingly enough you know thinking about the future like this mm-hmm. kind of stuff is going to be another cuz you know again climate change is definitely going to uh, disrupt mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit in, uh, in terms of econ- economies, particularly in the third world, mm-hmm. it's gonna have a, it's gonna have take it's gonna put a dent in food supplies, and so making sure that everybody gets fed um, is not just going to be resolved by the super abundance of capitalist no, development. No, it's not. So, so uh, famines are part of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. and there you know if. If this is what can happen, if you can get famines under capitalism when things aren't even really that bad. Yeah. When yeah, when the food yeah.
1: supply hasn't dipped really. Yeah. Yeah, what are we what are we looking at here? It's not looking good. It's not looking good at all.
2: Um Right, I mean we're we're yeah. we're actually reaching um the limits of modal production here. I mean, it's it's we're we're getting to a point where capitalism's own contradictions really are about to speak for themselves in a pretty big way. And, um,
1: you know, like, when I was more of like, uh, I don't know, when I had a little more, you know, moxie in me, you know, I, I used to really want to see the rev, you know, I wanted to see it pop off. The more that I understand revolutions, the more I realize the kinds of things that pop off revolutions, more than anything, there's wars, and then there's stuff where there's like like instability in the food supply. And so if you're like a first day communist kid, maybe you're not thinking about the greater moral costs and stuff, maybe that should be a cause for optimism for your ruptural strategy. You know, it's going to look, it's looking a little, you know, that's going to be more relevant in the future probably than it, than a lot of people had reason to believe. But what that tangibly means is fucking terrible. Like when capitalism's like, when, like if and when that capacity starts to collapse, like it's going to be pretty important that we have something in place. To quote catch society, and the way things are going, we don't and i don't I don't know what adult communists are supposed to do about this, but we're supposed to do something
2: well, one of the things in that scenario though is that i I hope that we see an established uh workers' movement by that point because i I don't think you can have you know scattered leftists you know take up the gun and that'll do it. Uh, I think I think we're going to need a pre-existing.
1: I feel like it's going to catch us with our pants down. I'm, I'm scared, you know, like I want there to be there, that workers movement. Who does who doesn't want that to pop up? Right. I mean, I mean, amongst Marxists, I suppose I should say.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's why I guess for like a lot of baby leftists, like that's what makes like sixty eight may 68 so attractive it's, it's mm-hmm. like yeah like so like we they all got on a campus then somebody jumped in a swimming pool and then they shut <laughs> the country you know what i'm saying like yeah it, it, it you was know, the fact that like most of the time it's like yeah it comes at the end of like some nasty war and a bunch of people are dead or yeah there's like people are starving and there's like bread runs and shit bread riots and shit yeah you know like that's usually stuff that pops off revolutions um it's yeah it's seldom like this uh it's not just like we go from society where we're at now and then we all ha they all decide to rise up and overthrow the man when we all realize that bush did 9-11 <laughs> and then after that it's like we have communism and we can all smoke weed in public, you know like it's not, it's not it's not how it's going down
1: yeah i got drunk wandering around with some dudes in france and now we have communism this is dope yeah
2: yeah you will be allowed to smoke weed in public, though. Well, actually, we'll mm-hmm. we'll we'll be abolishing the public-private division entirely,
0: so you can just smoke weed. Yeah, <laughs> so no, we got to have some public-private distinction. Like, you got There's some shit I don't need to be seeing in front of <laughs> You know. I,
2: I meant I meant in terms of I meant in terms of go- government market.
1: W- w- mm-hmm. Wait a second! If you. If you abolish the public-private distinction, then you can't smoke weed in public.
0: Yeah, we, like weed will weed will be legalized, but like, um, but people will be store- abolished. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So do we, do we have anything? Uh, do we have anything else to say on famines here? We. Uh, oh. I I I'm pretty much I'm out of uh, oh, yeah. I'm out of content here. I think.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a uh, a um. Thank you, Stephen, for throwing us. Yeah, like for your continued support, and um, yeah, not one step back. Or um,
0: yeah, and if there, if you're listening to this, and there's something that there was some angle of this that we were supposed to catch that we just completely missed, <laughs> just tell us. We'll talk. We'll talk about that. We can, we can record something later. Yeah. But I feel like I feel like we hit this maybe from you know because we have, we often get things that and you know I often wonder like what. What about this specifically? Were we supposed to talk about? You know, like what, what? What angle are they looking for us to to hit on with this thing? Right.
1: You know, maybe that's like that's like the obvious thing to look at.
0: Um, I mean, i th- I think it's I think it is relevant to our talking about famines in the future and our talking about famines in the past, right? Because you know, discussing famines in terms of you know, answering the crimes that people accuse, you know, actually existing socialism of. And, you know, or Ven- to talk about Venezuela, you know, it's always a specter of famines kind of haunts anyone who t- talks about any kind of anything to the left, socialist or left politics. Right.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, to be frank, this is an objection that's not really open to what, you know, you might call the capitalist roadsters in like 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 the, the, the communist right. You know what I mean? Like if you think about the third international, like where Bukharin ends up. And, you know, in, like, the, in the Chinese, like, in the Chinese, like, uh, regime, like, when there was a succession crisis after Mao, like, they thought of the, like, the Dongas as, you know, Bukharinists essentially. You know, they're the capitalist roadsters. They're taking after Bukharin. you know? But, like, some kind of, like, you know, market socialism without, like, bourgeois liberty or whatever, or, like, whatever this, like society is but like let's add markets like th- in a way if you're taking on amartya sen's framework like that is the responsible thing to do you don't try a great leap forward into the unknown like well i mean sen is food pr- production
2: sen is pretty adamant about freedom and democracy and things like that And i mean that's even outside of the context All- of the proletariat uh, I think you know. That, you know what? Though, that, that that's I a good that point. You have yeah. there is a huge yeah, like, there is a huge difference between a scenario in which you have the dictatorship of the proletariat and capital relations continue in some form, but and a situation you know where what? you have the dictatorship <clears> of the yeah, party yeah, yeah, yeah. and either capital relations or some kind of you know quote unquote command economy.
1: Oh, okay. No point taken let me revise this the right usually wants to do like bourgeois freedom of information because they basically kind of want like capitalism like <laughs> like they basically just want capitalism at a certain point and and they want like you know i don't know like that's what the right at least runs on their platform maybe they don't really want that um but that's what they say um the center that's trying to split the difference will do <laughs> Like, you know, especially those that are sort of taking after Stalin, they, um, they'll do zigzags, and they'll end up with, mar- like, eventually they'll end up with, um, having to fall back on markets, but they, then they don't add, like, bourgeois freedom. Or, I guess this is something that Victor Serge criticizes Bukharin for. So maybe, fuck all that, and maybe it is just the, the policy of the socialist right. And that, yeah. You have to agitate for freedom of information. You have to agitate for fucking something at least that meets the lowest standards of bourgeois freedom before you can go beyond it. Um, I suppose. I don't know. Well, it's, yeah, freedom, anyway,
2: freedom shouldn't be this far off thing that we get after, you know, it, it's, it's freedom itself. It's the contradiction of imposing freedom on, on capitalist relations. That undoes them, it's not that you take control of things and and it's you know so tight butthole that that you manage to get to the other side, and now we can be free
1: mm. yeah, okay, so I mean that's that's the one angle, right, so talking about like communism like it actually existed, socialism or whatever. And the famine's there. That's the one angle. The other angle, of course, is a critique of class society more generally. And how in this, you know, not, you know, not <laughs> class society socialism and in capitalism, you know, the problem isn't availability here. Um, The problem is, you know, access, like, in, in a, just to be really abstract about it. And then there was that, yeah, the future angle. I feel like we've covered the angles that he probably wanted us to cover
0: mm-hmm yeah I think I think uh I think so, yeah. god damn it lexi um, I can't believe like, I
2: can't believe I resisted this long you you trying to make what you trying to make a swamp side chat's meme out of the phrase tight butthole and then it just came to me as probably the closest thing to it
0: yeah i'm- con- i'm actually I'm concerned because i it still came don't to understand. me as maybe the closest
2: <laughs> thing to what I was trying to say in that moment, but I was, I was, Whoa. I was trying to resist that for damn.
1: Well, can you reframe that then? I'm curious because I don't see it.
2: No, no, I'll, st- I'll stick with it. I'm just like, now Jake's gonna say it next, and we're fucked.
0: <laughs> no, nah, you can't. You can't affect me with your filth.
1: <laughs> you're right. This is, this, from... is the,
2: this is the degenerate side of the podcast.
1: I, I, I got, I got one of them from a general intellect unit to do it. It made me so happy. I think it was Kyle. It Maybe slap. I just really
2: It was good. I did. I do remember hearing that. Yeah, we got somebody. We got a guest on our to say it. This is like wow. Can we? Can like, we just I, impose I, wait, wait. memes on the podcast? Because I'm gonna think of some shit that's better than tight butthole.
0: No well, offense. Of
1: course you. Uh, th- listen.
0: No please. memes are like fr- memes are like freedom. They can't be imposed on the people. I, I think <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so, actually, like, that's 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 totalitarianism. It must have I mean honestly totalitarianism yeah.
2: is the swamp side chat's meme at this point. <laughs>
0: <sighs> Man. And all this all this talk about famines has got me hungry. Mm. Hurry up. Finish this outro. Go make a little sandwich. You know? Maybe have a little uh Pickle on the side, some chips, coleslaw, and some good first world American eating. If you'd like me to continue eating, you can uh, donate to the podcast. Uh, Swampsideschats at gmail.com through PayPal. Gets us some money, keeps us going. Um, If uh, you can support us on Patreon... Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, email us at swapsidechance at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. You know, like and subscribe, all that shit. Um, yeah. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.